Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Hope Unlimited Church podcast. We're honored that you're here, and we pray that you find this message both encouraging and inspiring. Go to, we want to look at two places. Go to um, Genesis 1 and then go to Colossians chapter 1. Genesis 1 and then Colossians chapter 1. Genesis 1 should be relatively easy to find. Genesis 1 and then Colossians 1. That's good, Jake. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Genesis 1 and then Colossians chapter number 1. And, uh. I told Mark this morning, I said, we're going to preach on marriage. We're going to get these women submitting like they're supposed to, Jordan. You ready? You ready? You about to give me an offering? <laughs> Genesis chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. I'm kidding about that too. Some of you have never heard me preach. I'm being stupid right now. This doesn't mean I'm not serious at all. Genesis chapter 1 and then Colossians chapter number 1. I want to read Colossians first. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Very simple line. You don't need to study the Greek. Jesus is the image, the person of Christ, the human being named Jesus, is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus was the perfect bearer of God's image. Yes? Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus is what God is like. A lot of times when we talk about the Father and the Son, we preach them in two completely different ways. We have this vision of God who is this angry fiery cosmically frustrated deity and then you have Jesus who kind of stands in the way between us and God and absorbs all of the punishment and so we separate God and Jesus in that way we preach God one way and we preach Jesus another way but there is nothing in God that you find in Jesus there's nothing in God that you do not find in Jesus right Everything you see in Jesus, that's who God is. Jesus is not a part of God. He doesn't bear some of God's qualities or some of God's characteristics. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Hebrews calls him the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, you very simply find him, Paul says, in the face of Jesus Christ. I always ask my students, I teach at a school of ministry, and I always ask my students, how do we know, what's the best way we know who God is? And without question, everybody in unison responds, the Bible. But the Bible is not how you know who God is. That's not even the task that the Bible is trying to accomplish for us. The best way we know who God is, is we see Jesus. The Bible tells us what Jesus was like and who Jesus is, is who God the Father is. Are you with me so far? What does all of that have to do with marriage? I'm so glad you asked. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26. 
Then God said, let us make humans in our image. Whoever's back there on the sound, can you bump me up just a bit? Thank you so much. Then God said, let us make humans in our... I mean, I want it to feel like I'm just yelling at them all morning. Then God... (laughs) Blake is nervous. Then God said, let us make humans in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans. Everybody say humans. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Watch this line. Male and female, he created them. Verse 27. God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, as Christians, whenever we talk about anything, and I really want you to, I really want you to sit with this. As Christians, whenever we talk about anything, money, politics, um, the state of the world, sexuality, war, violence, physical health, mental health, spiritual health, whatever the case is. As Christians, our starting place always has to be Christ. We start with Jesus. We start with following Jesus. We start with following Jesus faithfully. Unfortunately, we live in the sort of culture where our views on all of these things are shaped by everything but Christ. They're shaped by whichever news outlet you watch. Or whichever political party you're a part of. And then we run to Jesus' life to resource various scriptures and texts to support the view that we've already had formed by something other than God. You with me? You see this when it comes to marriage all the time. People think that the the goal of marriage is to fulfill you. And the people married a long time just snickered if you didn't hear that the goal of marriage is to make you happy. For you to live your best life, to be your best self. And so the moment in marriage, the moment you experience a negative emotion, the moment the slightest hint of stress impinges upon you, you've got to bail out because this isn't doing what it was supposed to be doing. And what we think marriage is meant to do in our lives is not been formed by Christ. It's been formed by the world. It's been formed by the noise, the pace, and the values of the culture, not by Jesus. Right? I had a young pastor call me the other day, and uh, he had a he had a uh, uh, challenging situation in his in his church. He had a married couple in his church that they had been they had been going through a very tense season between them two uh, for about the last three four months, and. You know, it, it was like it was like a prolonged marital cold war. Y'all know what I mean? Where you're, it's all weird and tense in the home, and you're not speaking. Nobody's done anything crazy yet. Nobody's cheated. Nobody's abused the other one. But it's just tense and hard, and and there's a disconnect. 
And this has been going on about three months, about 90 days. And this pastor calls me and he was telling me about this couple. And he tells me that this man comes to him and he was, the pastor was looking for advice. He said, this, this guy's coming to me. He's hurting. He's confused. He's distraught. There's tension in his home. And, and he's finally come to me, Pastor Casey. And he said, I can't do it anymore. So what do I tell him? He's hurting. What do I tell him? He can't do it anymore. And I said, well, the first thing you tell him is, yeah, you can. You most certainly can. You are putting a pressure on marriage to do for you something it was never meant to do for you to begin with. And so you, can, you could marry Jesus. And it wouldn't fix that because that's not what marriage does. I heard a great Christian say this the other day. He said, most of our Western theology is us explaining away to one another why Jesus' teaching doesn't really apply to us. Right? We have to start with Christ, not the noise, the pace, and the values of the world. Are you with me? Now, Our first glimpse that we get of male-female relationships is in the text in Genesis when he says, in the image of God, he creates humans. Humans are called to bear the image of God. That's what it means to be human. I know Pastor Cole has talked about this at length. What it means to even be human is to be a bearer of God's image. That's what you were created to do. I don't know if you're called to run a business. I don't know if you're called to be in ministry. I, none of that stuff matters. What you're ultimately called to do is reflect the image of God into the world. That's what it means to be human. And the more you reflect God's image into the world, the more human you are. That's why sin is so damaging and so devastating. We tell each other all the time, I sin because I'm human. But sin is not human. Sin is dehumanizing. Sin unravels your humanity. Sin works against your humanity. What it means to be human is to reflect the glory of God into the world. And everything that works against that, which we call in the Christian world sin, that undoes our humanity. That distorts God's image in our life. You follow me? I promise you I'm going somewhere. I really need y'all to hang in here with me. You're like, well, if you say something worth hanging in here with, we'll... God creates humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he creates them. Now, we jump over to Colossians, and the text says that Jesus is the visible image of God. In other words, not only is Jesus who God is, not only is Jesus the perfect image of God, Jesus is the perfect image of a human. He is the true human. He's not just a perfect man. He is the true human. He is the true image of what a human is meant to be, which is a perfect reflection of God. Are you following me? Now, Jesus is the image of God, but Jesus reflects God's image in a particular way. Colossians goes on to tell us precisely what this image looks like, concretely speaking. It is it's an abstract statement to say, you're supposed to bear the image of God. And we're like, yeah, what is that? 
But Colossians goes on to tell us that Jesus bears God's image in a particular, concrete, real way. He bears God's image in how he gives up his life for the world on the cross. So in order to be an image bearer of God, Jesus just doesn't reflect God's glory into the world just abstractly speaking, he reflects who God is and how he lays down his life for others. And the very first encounter we have, if that's what it means to bear God's image, to, get, to give ourselves for others, the very first we encounter we have in the scriptures about human beings bearing God's image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The very first encounter we have with our call to bear God's image is in the context of male and female relationships. Male and female, he created them in his image. Because most of us, the first place we learn to lay down our life for somebody else is in the context of marriage. Marriage is not meant to make you happy. It's meant to make you holy. Rousing response from the crowd. You're like, hmm. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Marriage isn't meant to make you happy. Marriage is meant to make you human. And it's meant to make you human because it trains you to lay down your life for somebody else. Marriage is martyrdom. Marriage is not your path to self-fulfillment. Marriage is not your path to self-care. Marriage is your path to self-denial. I'll amen myself. Preach, white boy. Come on. You learn what it means to bear God's image in the context of marriage in how you lay down your life for the other. This is, why, this is why marriage is, if we see marriage rightly, especially in the world that we live in, with the noise, the pace, and the values of the world. I have, I have talked to countless people who have went through divorces. And they've gone through divorces because that's just, that marriage was just not good for me. It's actually the best thing for you. Because it's taking your selfishness and forcing it to a cross. So when we see marriage starting with Christ, then marriage is the most counter-cultural act the church can engage in. What it means to be the church, you have to hear me, you have to hear me, you have to hear me. The very first task of the church is not to make the world a better place. That is not the first task of the church. I'm going to let you sit with that. Think of all the ways I'm wrong, and then let me explain. The very first task of the church is not to make the world a better place. And Christians are not called just to be good people. You should be a good person. 
you should embody the goodness of God in radical ways. I don't want you to hear that as some excuse of being a jerk. Well, Pat, that's my Enneagram. If you don't know what the Enneagram is, it's a numerical system we use to explain away all of our bad qualities. You're a jerk. I'm a five. What can I say? Cole likes that. Cole likes that. That hit Cole deep. The very first task of the church is to make the world the world. Meaning we live in such a countercultural way that the line between the world and, and the culture and the church is a mile long instead of an inch long. We live in such a way. Our lives are marked by such a self-sacrificial, self-giving love that there is a radical distinction between this alternative community of humans called the church and then the world. And only when we're living that faithfully do we have anything to offer the world at all. Most of what we call church is a poorer version of worldly entertainment. Our music's not nearly as good. Our preachers are not nearly as good as the stand-up comics. Preach. Found out Chris Rock's coming to Knoxville. I was going to let you know that. (laughs) We live in such a radically different way that we present ourselves as an alternative community with an alternative way of life. We used to, we live, where we live, we're about an hour and a half from an Amish community, right? And everybody goes there. Everybody, when they talk about the Amish community, that seems like a, just a, a lovely, simple way to live until you go there. And there's like eight-year-old kids, you know, pulling mules and plowing fields and hadn't bathed in six months. And you're like, mm, thank God for conveniences. But when you see them, when you encounter them, It is a profoundly different way of life. There's a wide gap between their world and mine. But between our world is our flavor of Christians and the world, there's no distinction. Especially in our marriages. Because the, the very language we use to talk about marriage and divorce, we did not get from Scripture. We did not get from Jesus. We got it from the noise, the pace, and the values of the culture. It's not popular to say, if you're getting married, you have to die. This is how we talk about it in the church. Marriage is hard. No, marriage is death. Marriage is martyrdom. Marriage is putting yourself on a cross. Marriage is having to be mistreated. And you know what you get to do about it? Forgive it over and over and over and over again. I love that text in Matthew when Jesus is teaching on forgiveness. And then Peter walks up to him and he's like, Lord, now. I know you're talking about us forgiving one another. And Peter goes, so how many times do they get to sin against us 
And we have to forgive them. And then Peter is like, I'm going to swing for the fence. I'm going to make Jesus so proud. I mean, I'll even forgive them seven times. And Jesus responds, no. How about seven times 70? And some of us take that literally. We're like, all right, that's 490 times. They've sinned against me 484 times. Six more strikes. <laughs> and I fulfilled my Christian obligation. <laughs> because we don't know the difference. We, can't, we don't know the difference between mistreatment and abuse. We think all mistreatment is abuse. And I don't want to diminish, I, I don't want to minimize there are Horrific. I'm a pastor. Believe me, I've sat with countless couples going through horrific, horrific situations. Me and my wife have counseled dozens and dozens and dozens of couples. Dozens. And only one time have we ever encountered a couple where we told the wife, you're going to need to get out of the house. More often than not, it's just hurtful painful mistreatment and we have been taught you don't have to put up with that you ain't got to take that and I want to ask the church do you even have a Bible the very Lord we claim to follow was the most innocent man in ever he created us, and his very creation killed him. And what does he do while we're killing him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He did not say, I will forgive them if they see the error of their ways, and if they come back, and if they go through a restoration process, and they promise to never do it again, and they start doing better. While we didn't even know we were sinning against him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's awfully quiet this morning. That's what marriage is. You mean if I get married, I'm going to have to suffer mistreatment? Yes. Well, I don't know if I can do that. Stay single. And, and we, we need to have a completely different vision of what singleness is. We talk about singleness in the church as though it is a lower status. Right? That your life can't even begin. I see all the single people like, whoa, glory to God. That, it, that you can't even start your life until you find the one. I want you to think about this, especially the way our culture defines success. What if I told you I know a young man? I know a young man. He's 30 years old. He works odd jobs. He lives in a poor part of town. He does not have a college degree. He does not have any education, really. And he's never been on a date. And he's super close with his mom. Y'all would be like, he's weird. That guy is Jesus. Never been on a date at 30. I don't know. Super close with his mom. His dad died. We never even hear about him. And he's just doing odd carpentry jobs. And he doesn't have much money. 
and he just walks everywhere he goes. And he has no plans for the future. He doesn't have five-year goals, 10-year goals, and 20-year goals. And he prays a lot. He's like super spiritual. We would condemn that young man. That young man is the very man you say is your Lord. Now tell me we're not neck deep in worldliness when we talk about these things. We are neck deep in it. There's a line in in Corinthians, Paul's writing, and uh, he says, the Corinthian church, they're they're suing each other. there's, There's conflict between church members. And they're to the point they're taking each other to court. And Paul writes to them a letter and says, what are you doing? You're taking each other to court. The unbelievers are having to sit as judges over your conflicts. And you know what Paul's answer is for them? Actually, I'm going to turn there. Grab your Bible. Go to 2 Corinthians. If you don't know where that's at, it's after 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Chapter 6. Verse 1. Can you throw that up there for me, Charlie? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. There you go. When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare to take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world's to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? To say nothing of ordinary matters? If you have ordinary cases, then do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one single person in the whole city, in the church, wise enough to decide between brothers and sisters? Instead, brothers and sisters in the church Go to court against one another, and this before the unbelievers. Are you all with me? It gets worse. So, In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Watch this line. Why not just be done wrong? Why not just be defrauded? You know what defrauded means? It means people taking money from you. But you yourselves are wrong and defraud. And you're doing this to your own brothers and sisters. This is Paul's great pastoral wisdom for conflict in the church. And it also is great pastoral wisdom for conflict in marriage. Why not just be done wrong? I don't mean abused. I don't mean 
having an unfaithful spouse and pretending like it's not happening. But that is not 90% of the problems in marriages. Most marriages do not end because a bomb went off. Most marriages die by a thousand little cuts. Why not just be done wrong? Because the culture told you, you don't have to put up with that. But the Christian life tells you, you're supposed to lay down your life and forgive even if they don't apologize. Even if they don't make it right. You're supposed to give before they even come around to make it right. That, that is bearing the image of God. That is following Jesus. Jesus did that for us and now demands that we do it for one another. And the word the New Testament uses for that is love. We don't have love in our marriages. We have attraction. We have sexual activity. We have companionship. We have mutual shared interests. But we do not have love. Because love demands you die. And I know what you're thinking. Well, who dies first? (laughs) The man or the woman? All right? You don't fall in love and then get married. You get married and then you begin to learn what love requires of you. You don't fall in love and then get married. You get married and then you begin to learn what love requires of you. This is why the Christian church always performs marriages in the presence of witnesses. Because your marriage is about you keeping promises. And the community is there to witness that vow that you made to hold you accountable to that vow. This isn't some legal ordinance that the United States of America sanctions. This is a sacrament in Christ's holy church. Are you with me? It's, it's the, the, irony, the irony of all of this is I don't know that I've ever attended a wedding where 1 Corinthians 13 was not read. And everybody reads it and it's like gives you these warm feelings. Something happens. Something happens to our minds when we hear the same Bible verses over and over and over again. We stop feeling their force. We stop feeling the weight of what is being said. Right? Ah, for God so loved the world, he gives his only begotten son. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, got that. Right? Even the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, we, we totally miss the force behind those words. All right? Charlie, pull up 1 Corinthians 13 for me. I'm going to end with this. Closing number one. 
we miss the force of this language. And we miss when Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 13 is a rebuke to the church. The very church that's suing one another. That's holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a chapter for you to hang on the, in the kitchen because it reminds you that we're married and we're supposed to love one another. 1 Corinthians 13 is a rebuke to marriages. I know, I just ruined like your favorite Bible passage. Right? You're never going to read it again the same way. Watch this. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4. Love is patient. Love is patient. The King James word for it is long-suffering. You know what long-suffering means? Suffering long. It means there is no end. It means, I w- it doesn't mean I will go with you this far and once you hit this line, it's over. I'm going to be patient as long as God's grace is still at work. I'm not just going to be patient. I'm going to be kind while I'm being patient. That's even worse. It's one thing to endure with a bad attitude. It's another thing to endure with a good attitude. Go back to the NRSV, Charlie. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envious or boastful or arrogant. This this next line will change marriages. Love isn't rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Unless you're the right Enneagram that says irritable is just part of your makeup. No. What do I do if that's me? You crucify that. You grow. You mature. You learn to be patient. Nobody's born patient. You learn it. Maturity is learning to bear the the, the immaturity of others patiently. Maturity is learning to bear the immaturity of others patiently. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Go back, Charlie. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Now, this next line is very troubling. Verse 7. Love bears all things. It bears all things. I want you to sit with that. Whatever gets thrown at it, love bears up under it. And just when you think, I can't do this anymore, love requires you to. Love demands it of you. If Jesus is Lord of your life and mine, we must live by this. Again, I'm not talking about 
dangerous, destructive, abusive behavior. But we name every inconvenience, every ounce of stress as abuse. Well, he talked mean to me. Verbal abuse. There is real verbal abuse in the world. No doubt. And I am not advocating that. But most of what we're calling so hurtful and so painful, it's not because it's actually abusive. It's just because it steps on our pride. And it offends our ego. And it creates stress. And it stretches us. And it demands that we grow. And it demands that we do the most Christian thing of all, which is the hardest thing of all. Forgive. Throw that back up there, verse 7. Love endures. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love endures all things. So, I came to encourage you in some twisted kind of way. That marriage is martyrdom. It's the bearing of a cross. It's the laying down of your life. You see people that have been married 70 years. It's not because they were lucky enough to find the right one. That's not true. That's a lie. They didn't find their soulmate. That's not what happened. At some point, they decided instead of fighting to be right, I'm going to fight to follow Jesus. And that means I have to prefer my wife over what I want. That means I have to deny myself and take up a cross. That means I don't get to insist on things being my way. And I don't get to insist that we think the way I think. And we do what I want to do. And that if you wrong me, you're going to pay a price till I know that you got what you did and you're never going to do it again. There are things that she's done to me before that's hurt me that she doesn't even know she's done. That I have to go before the Lord and say, Father, forgive her. And forgive me. We don't know what we're doing. Right? Stand to you. If I, if we can, if I want to accomplish anything this morning, what I want to accomplish is, I want to challenge. I want to challenge the world's definition of what it means to be married. If you follow the world's definition of marriage, you're going to be, if you haven't noticed, and I don't say this judgmentally or looking down my nose at them, I don't say it in that way, but if you've not noticed they're profoundly confused about love and marriage, they're profoundly confused about it, what it means to 
bondage and bind your life to another to become one with that person and to lay down your life. Marriage is not to fulfill you. Marriage can't do that. Jesus is not married to his church because we fulfill him in some perverse way. Marriage makes you holy. It makes you human. It makes you more like him. So if you're ever in a marriage and it's hard and you're like, I feel like I'm dying, we'll go ahead and lay down. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for these people. I thank you for every married couple in this room. I thank you for every single person in this room. I thank you for every divorced person, every divorced and remarried person. Whatever stage, whatever area or or, or season of life they find themselves in, Lord, I thank you for these, your people. And we hear a fresh call today to be like Jesus, to love our neighbors. And our first neighbor is our spouse and our children, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We hear your call to laying down our life, to giving up ourselves on the cross for the person beside us, or for the person that's you're going to send to us, or maybe for those children that we have, we lay down our life. We endure hard things. We bear up under the struggle in Jesus' name. And I want to tell, I want to tell you a, uh, I'll tell you a little secret, little, little pastoral secret. Everybody in this room, myself included, Cole, Mark, the leadership, everybody in this room, married, single, divorced, remarried, whatever the case may be, every person in this room is struggling. You're struggling. You're either struggling well or you're struggling badly but it's still a struggle. And so let's be gracious to one another. Let's be open to one another. Let's be warm and inviting and not ju- non-judgmental and non-condemning. That's not what the church is. The church should be the safest place in the world to have a problem. The church should be the safest place in the world to have a problem. Everybody's struggling. They're either struggling well or they're struggling badly. And everybody in this room at some point in your life, if you you wouldn't mind, Jake, break that down just a bit. Everybody in this room at some point in your life, you've struggled both well and badly. And so we open ourselves up as a community to the strugglers, which is every one of us, to those struggling well and to those struggling badly. Amen.